Welcome to Endless, a Sandman podcast from Chipperish Media. I'm writer, erstwhile DC Comics editor, and fackin' dungwit, Alisa Quitney. And I'm story expert and fuddled jug biter, Lonnie Diane Rich. Today on Endless, we are going to be talking about Men of Good Fortune, issue 13 from the Sandman comic book series. Men of Good Fortune was written by Neil Gaiman and illustrated by Michael Zuli and Steve Parkhouse. Xylenol did the colors. Todd Klein lettered. This issue was edited by Karen Berger, assisted by Art Young, cover by Dave McKean. You dare? You dare imply that I might befriend a mortal? That one of my kind might need companionship? You dare call me lonely? Time to wake up. All right, Elisa, so here we are in what is kind of an intermission in the middle of the doll's house, this little uh, trip back in time, men of good fortune. How do you like this issue? I love this issue. It's it's a very quiet issue of the Sandman. You could uh, mm-hmm. pluck it right out and still not miss anything that would prevent you from understanding the the larger storyline. Mm-hmm. But it's it's actually one of my favorites, and I mm-hmm. I think that one of the things I love about it is it's so much like a trip to England because. Having uh, been married for, you know, most of my life to uh, an Englishman, I went to England a lot. And mm-hmm. you feel history differently there. You, you know, mm-hmm. you you go into, you know, one street, suddenly you're touching on things that are from the Middle Ages and the next you're, um, you know, touching up against something from the Tudor period and, and mm-hmm. restoration. And you get more of that sense of how much stays the same so i Mm -hmm. i think that uh i think there's something about this issue that feels because of all it's time hopping very timeless to me Mm -hmm. yeah absolutely um i love this issue Uh, it is a sweet short story um and like i said it's kind of an inner it feels like an intermission like all of a sudden we're breaking out although i do think that thematically there are some links from between this and like the rest of what's going on. We're going to talk about it in a little bit. Um, it definitely breaks up the momentum of the narrative, which may be why in the audible version, this comes first at the beginning of Dollhouse before anything else. Um, and it kind of serves in that uh, version as something of a prologue. Um, and then we move into the Doll's House, the regular narrative. Um, I love Dream's humanity here. Like he appears in the fashion of the time. And of course, how much of that is like he appears how he appears to the people around him? So that is he him is he dressing up or is he just like is that just how people see him? I don't know, but it's kind of interesting. I like to think that he's dressing up because the bows on the shoes in 1689 are like freaking perfect. Oh, oh! I just want to say I think he's dressing up because if he were just appearing the way people saw him, wouldn't he have the white periwig? Because everyone else was wearing the white periwig. Uh, maybe I like to I mean I think that that as an added element that his outfits and his design is something that is deliberately done like that adds just a lovely little bit of character to to dream in this um you know and I I love that we you know we visit with William Shakespeare. Uh, we've got Johanna Constantine who shows up. And in the end, the story isn't about what happens when we don't die. It's about what happens when we really live. And I kind of like that. All right, so let's get into the summary. 
In Men of Good Fortune, we open in the White Horse Tavern in 1389, where Hob Gadling is drinking with his friends when Dream and Death walk in. Death wants Dream to actually interact with actual people. Dream isn't that interested until he hears Hob say that he has no intention to die. Dream makes a deal with Death and then suggests that Hob meet him back in the White Horse a hundred years from now, in 1489. Hob's friends laugh, but Hob takes the deal. And a hundred years later, he meets up with Dream, no older physically. He wants to know if Dream is a demon, and Dream says no, but he doesn't tell him any more than that, except that death will not touch Hob unless he truly desires it. Hob says he's mostly been fighting in wars for the past hundred years and has started up a printing press, but it's too much work and probably won't last. He and Dream agree to meet in that place again in a hundred years. In 1589, Dream returns to find that Hob is now Robert and knighted to boot. Hob says he leaves for a while, then comes back as his own son. But now he has a wife and an actual son. He's rich and life is what he always imagined heaven would be. Safe, enough food, good wine. Meanwhile, at a nearby table, a young William Shakespeare is talking to Kit Marlowe, bemoaning his own lack of talent. He wants to give men dreams that would live on long after I am dead. Dream asks about him, and Hobbes says he's crap. Dream approaches Will and takes him aside to talk. 1689, Dream waits for Hobbes in the tavern, but when Hobbes comes in, he's a mess, and the tavern has risen in the world and doesn't want Hobbes' ilk inside. Dream says Hobbes is his guest, and the tavern keeper allows it. Hobbes is already drunk. His wife died, so did his son. He lived too long in one town, and they tried to drown him as a witch. He took Charles I's side in the war, and that ended badly. He's hated every minute of the last 80 years. But when Dream asks if he's ready to die now, he answers with an emphatic no. Death is a mugs game. 1789, as Hobbes and Dream catch up on all of Hobbes' latest entrepreneurial pursuits in the New World, they are overtaken by Lady Johanna Constantine, whose henchmen hold knives to their throats. She says there's a tale about the devil and the wandering Jew who meet at that tavern every hundred years. Dream knocks out her henchmen and shows Johanna the ghosts of people she sacrificed. She is frozen in terror, and as Dream and Hob leave, Dream suggests that Hob stop enslaving people. It's a shitty thing to do. 1889. Dream says he employed Johanna Constantine to do a job for him in the intervening years. Hob says that he's met someone else who doesn't die, a fellow named Blood. And then there's Mad Hetty. Hob understands now that the meeting every hundred years isn't just so Dream can see what happens when someone doesn't die. He already knows. He suggests that Dream is lonely and just wants a friend. Dream is offended by the very idea and storms out as Hob tells him that if Dream shows up in a hundred years' time, it'll be for friendship and nothing else. 1989. Hob waits in the tavern, listening to other people talk about art and politics and the end of the world. Finally, Dream walks in and Hob is surprised. He wasn't sure that Dream would come. Dream says it's impolite to keep one's friends waiting and asks Hob if he would like a drink. 
All right, Elisa. So let's start where we always start right at the beginning with this amazing cover from Dave McKean. Um, the cover is this collage. It includes pieces of a clock face, uh, all broken, but showing through what looks like a medieval manuscript written in like Latin, I'm guessing, but I don't know. Uh, spanning over a segment of the bottom half is this kind of dim green and black photo of a bunch of skeletons next to each other. Uh, the image mostly in shadow. Um, and this like the broken clock face and the skeletons on a story about the evasion of death. Um, I find I find really interesting, like as a commentary, because the skeletons, even though clearly skeletons would indicate death, have a lively look to them. They have like almost facial expressions, you know. Um, and so the the cracked clock, you know, the the fractured timeline, um, and then and then this evasion of death, while death always seems to be present, even when it's alive, it's just such an interesting like visual representation of some of the themes that are going on in this issue. Absolutely. I, I think this may be one instance in which I think the cover is a little darker than the contents. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But I I love it. I love that Latin manuscript and how, it, you know, it, there are little gaps where we can see a burning mat showing through mm -hmm. and we can see this clock face, as you've described, um, underneath. And as you were describing the cover, I suddenly had this memory, which mm -hmm. um, I can't remember how many years ago this was, five years ago, seven. Um, I was, I went to the British Library in London and you can mm -hmm. see some of the oldest manuscripts there. You can oh see a wonderful medieval manuscripts, manuscripts and, um, you know, samples of the Canterbury Tales and the original Mm -hmm. old English uh, no sorry middle English and mm -hmm. um and and Magna Carta and so you see these old manuscripts and at the same time Dave McKean had done an installation on comics there so it was all designed by him and you could go in and see this um very Dave McKean-esque uh you know journey through comics and what comics could be so um I don't know why I suddenly thought of that, but that's what your description of the cover made me think of. I love it. I love it. I love all this behind the scenes stuff. It's really, really fun. Um, speaking of behind the scenes, we have some new artists working on this issue. Yeah. So, you know, the, the funny thing about this issue, as we have uh, noticed and had to contend mm -hmm. with, is it appears in different places. It, it, it appeared in the original run, you know, mm -hmm. so that it was, it was, coming in at a point where it was also giving the regular artistic team a little chance to catch up mm -hmm. and uh, and maybe even get ahead. I don't remember. I wasn't yet on staff, so I don't remember if they were trying to catch up or get ahead. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, later on it was moved, you know, uh, in its placement because it is kind of a standalone. Although, as you mm -hmm. brilliantly noticed, there are, um, there are themes that resonate throughout. But uh, we do have a different artistic team. We've got Michael Zuli, who was penciling here, and we've got Steve Parkhouse, who is inking. Now, um, mm -hmm. I'll just say for those who don't know about penciling and inking, that in the um, 90s movie, Chasing Amy, there is a great uh, <laughs> rant by an inker who, you know, everyone bypasses the inker and only concentrates on the penciler. And he's saying, you know, it's not just coloring, going over the lines. <laughs> and um, and I have to say that in this particular fusion, I can definitely see 
Zuli, and I can also see Steve Parkhouse, um, both of whom are wonderful artists. So I'll say a little bit mm -hmm. about both. Um, yeah. Michael Zuli went on to work on more Sandman projects. Uh, I quickly did my due diligence, and I think there were seven in all, including the final story arc. And I believe at oh. that time, we had the capability for the first time of uh, just reproducing his pencils. So he's mm -hmm. penciling without an inker. Now, you know, it's interesting. Some pencilers definitely, you know, benefit from having an inker. There's something that is the finished look. Zuli's pencils are really, really, there's, uh, I'm trying to find a description. There's a great quality to them that feels mm -hmm. both sensual and um, both exact and sort of soft. And you get a sharper mm -hmm. edge with inking. So that'll be an interesting thing to, to see um, later on in the series. When I went on to edit a spin-off series from Sandman called The Dreaming. I think I've mm -hmm. mentioned that before. And I so I was editing almost all of it. There's one story that I wrote and Karen edited, and that was with Zuli. Um mm -hmm. it was I I just love that. It's one of the comics I'm prouder of. It's called His Brother's Keeper and it's mm -hmm. got Kane's wife. And um anyway, it was a, a lot of fun working with Zuli on that. Steve Parkhouse, who inked this issue, is also a, a really, really good penciler in his own right. And I, you know, this is the problem with doing this so many years after the original. I can't remember if I paired him with the writer mm -hmm. um, Peter Hogan or if they came together or if Karen did it. So uh, I'm sure that thousands of people will tell me what I can no longer <laughs> remember. But um, but they were a team. They did, I, I want to say, I think seven issues of The Dreaming. They did a storyline. Mad Hetty's in there too. And um, afterwards, they continued to work together. And they worked for Dark Horse and did a creator-owned series called Resident Alien, which is oh. now the award-winning sci-fi uh, TV series and really worth checking out. Yes, starring Alan Tudyk, who is one of my favorite actors of all time, uh, starting with his role as Wash in, um, uh, Firefly. in Firefly. And of course, let's never forget Steve the Pirate in Dodgeball. Um, the other thing that uh, that I absolutely love, and, and part of this may be like, I'm an Anglophile. I have always loved, I've never been to England, so I'm so jealous, I need to go. Um, but uh, but I'm a huge Anglophile. I've been studying, like I, I did a history minor in college and I did all British history classes. So I took classes of everything. You know, Eleanor of Aquitaine was when, I think the first class that I took started. And then I've kind of followed through all of that there. So for me, it was really fun to kind of see the representation of one place and how it changed, you know, and how it changed and how it didn't, you know, because the conversations that you see, the people having in 1389 are almost the same in 1989, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Um, but you did a little historical tourism piece here. I'm, I'm loving this. Oh, well, I, I think because I'm disorganized, I've kind of put it in two places in this. <laughs> um, so, you know, we're, we're visiting this pub to begin with in the late Middle Ages. I think we revisit mm -hmm. it during the Wars of the Roses. And again, in Tudor times, Restoration England and Victorian England. And I, I was 
going to say that I think for a lot of U.S. readers who may not have been to the U.K., it may seem completely implausible that a pub would stand in the same place in use for hundreds and hundreds of years Mm -hmm. because... I mean, I grew up in New York City where anytime there's an interesting old building, we knock it down and put something (laughs) ugly in its place. There's, you know, there are sites Mm -hmm. like ephemeral New York and forgotten New York where you can see the strange little remnants of things but we're Mm. not very good at keeping things and even when we restore Mm -hmm. them by the way we restore them really badly Um, yeah i think it's um 90 is it 98th street or 99th street or 100th street there's a little diner and on top of the diner there is one of the last remaining wooden structures in new york city now for a long time Mm. it just looked so derelict you would barely notice it And then Mm -hmm. they restored it and they restored it in some hideous way where it still is sort of wood, but it doesn't quite look, it doesn't look old anymore. Mm -hmm. Whatever they did is they replaced enough of it that it lost that feeling. In England, they're really good at keeping things. So you walk in to say the Mermaid Inn in in, um, Rye and, Mm -hmm. um, and it's the the floors are uneven the walls kind of bulge the windows have that you know thick distorting glass right because they're actually liquid right so over time the gravity pulls them down and that's why old glass gets that kind of beautiful distorted feel to it i i didn't know i just i actually I i don't know actually if that's true I don't, As I say it, I'm like, is that true? I feel like I read that somewhere, but that might not be true. So people don't trust me. But anyway, keep going. Well, yes, I, it's very, I love this whole ship of Theseus, right? <laughs> yes, that, how like, much can you somehow, replace it? It's still... Right. And then it doesn't... It's not the thing anymore. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I, I just know that there are so many places in England which really have remained in use for generation after generation. Mm-hmm. You can... You can feel the haunting, and uh, <laughs> and it's it's really funny because we love Victorian England, but Victorian stuff is so prevalent in the UK that it's pretty, you know, like ah, oh, that's modern stuff. Whatever, that's, we have tons of that. Um, so I think that that part of it, it, it seems more natural that Neil would have written that. Um, mm-hmm. So I went into a deep dive in my. The t- late 20s about the bubonic plague uh, I was first of all I just became sort of obsessed with the bubonic plague and mm-hmm. then I it ended up when I was pregnant with my first kid I, I was writing destiny a chronicle of deaths foretold anyway mm-hmm. um, so in the beginning Hobbes says something about the black death took half his village this may be mm-hmm. one of those rare moments where I can actually say that's that's incorrect he would have said the pestilence um, which I am guessing that Neil, Neil knows all this. He may have decided to have Hobbes say the Black Death just so that a reader of today would right. know what they were talking mm-hmm. about. I'm sure mm-hmm. that I'm going to get a little, of course, I knew what I was talking about. <laughs> I had to deal with the <laughs> ignorance of the general populace. No, Neil wouldn't say that. He yes. never talks mm-hmm. about people being, but he just wants to be accessible. But um, also in Victorian times, I'm just looking at my notes. Oh, yes. Okay. It's the hat thing. By the way, there are all kinds of wonderful vlogs now by, um, Mm -hmm. I don't know what they are called. They're historical costumers. They're women Mm -hmm. who, who are often crowdsourced and they take original, the kind of materials you'd use to create an authentic fabric and they Mm -hmm. will talk about what's wrong with 
um, the costuming and a lot of costume dramas. So one of my f- <laughs> favorite things is that in in all times before modern, a woman mm-hmm. had to cover some part of her hair when she was outside, married, unmarried. You didn't mm-hmm. go out bareheaded because that was considered indoor uh, dress. And to send a message that your indoor signals when you're outside is to do what a prostitute would do. So in oh. in all of these, uh, I don't know, Pride and Prejudice and 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 so many, it's it's the one thing that customers mm-hmm. tend to leave out are bonnets and hats, and oh. it would be like I don't know, having your 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 boobs hanging out, right, right. <laughs> but the prostitute Lushing Lou is actually wearing a proper little Victorian hat. <gasps> How neat is that? That is so cool. I love watching those costuming videos too from people who actually have the stuff. When I was doing the, um, I was doing my podcast on Outlander, um, I would watch all of those costuming videos. They did amazing work in costuming on Outlander. And what was involved in, in a woman getting dressed like a woman, a noble woman, you know, like and how many people had to come in and get her dressed in the morning. It's just astounding to me um, what it took, you know. Oh, my gosh. As you've been talking, you know, I, I spent hours doing notes. I suddenly remembered something Neil told me about the Middle Ages. And I'm not What's this. Oh, my gosh. I'm not. I'm trying to think of how I can say this. So it's not too disgusting. Uh, I should just say that Neil understood really quickly that mm-hmm. I love disgusting historical tidbits. Um, yes. Mm-hmm. And uh, it turns out, how can I put this? Hmm. In women did not wear underwear. Underwear was not a mm-hmm. part of a woman's dress. You would have all kinds of petticoats that would be close to your skin and they would get the mm-hmm. the, the nasties. You know, that would be what you washed. Your outer garments weren't really yeah. washed. Um, and then when women would kneel for mm-hmm. hours and hours in churches without the undies, sometimes I guess you'd have, oh, there was a special term for them. These little... You know, like a bessoir is a magical object that's yeah. with the owl pellet. Uh huh. Kind of like not a bessoir, but a bessoir, <laughs> and not magic. Wow, There's a, that is a, a fascinating piece of information that's going to keep me up for a while tonight. There's I think. a special <laughs> name for them too, and he knew the name, wow. and I have forgotten. Oh my god! Oh, I'm sorry, I've forgotten the name. We'll just call it the va-va-voom. Yeah. We, we will call it the va-va-voom. Anyway, let's, let's go anyway. on. You had, you had some really wonderful insights on friendship in the time of, of uh, solipsism. Yes, right. Well, it takes Hub 500 years to think about any of this from any perspective other than his own. It takes him 500 years to wonder why Dream meets him once a century in this tavern, you know? And the thing is that I don't think that Hobb is a narcissist. He's just immature. Like even with all of those years of living, he cannot love maturely until he cares about someone else without it being about him at all, right? And nothing in Hobbes' life is not about him, you know? It takes 500 years, but in this moment, it happens. When he talks to Dream and he says, you are here 
because you want a friend. And Dream, of course, completely offended by this very idea, you know. Um, but then Hob is just like, all right, if you come back in 100 years, I know it's because you love me, baby. Like, I love that whole interaction. And I love, th- I love watching that moment when Hob turns from this complete immature solipsism into somebody who can look at somebody else and be like, this is what's going on with you. Right. Um, and I love it. And I love the way that Dream gets so pissed off about it because, of course, Hob is right. Um, it's so fun. It's fun to watch. And I really, I really enjoyed that particular turn. Like, I loved the whole, like, you know, we're traveling through history and we're telling all of the stories. And it's always fun to tell the stories. And the idea of the ship of Theseus in the, in the White Horse Tavern is it changes. And yet the people inside are still talking about the same things. Like, all of that stuff I love. This is where this story solidified for me and became, like, really about something. And I love that moment. And this is also what I love about doing this podcast with you because it was just one of those moments when I saw in the notes this I just went, oh, yes. And I, I felt how your reaction was enriching my experience again, which was Aww. it was just really nice. And I it also made me think that, you know, it's easy for me to imagine an arc in which a person lives long enough to become less and less human uh, to become less and less attached to humans and the things they care about. And that's why I think we can really see how, despite all of the horror that you and I have discussed, Sandman Mm -hmm. as a series has a really optimistic heart. Sandman as a series is about like concepts that are not human. I think, okay, I I can't speak to what Sandman is a series, but I've read the first two things. What I'm saying is this. I feel so far what I see is that we have all of these concepts that are anthropomorphized, right, that that become more and more human as they go. And I find that it's so interesting and so fun and and to through through eternity to reach toward humanity rather than fall away from it, I think is kind of a radical concept, right? Our cynical hearts are like the older you get, the more shitty everything is and you just know and fuck it, whatever, the world's a pit, right? And then you die, you know? The idea that that the longer they live, the longer they exist, the more human they become. Um, I find that to be kind of like a really interesting and yes, optimistic you know, kind of idea. Yeah. And and also that, you know, Dream starts out being so convinced that he is right. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, he's he's like a dream fundamentalist, as it were. And he becomes more and more willing to see gray areas. Mm -hmm. Oh, God, it's so fun. I also love this. When Dream gets really pissed off, right, he is offended by the idea that he would want anything, let alone a friend. And I find that interesting because desire, 
right, appears so far to be the least favorite sibling. Death and Dream have both kind of, you know, slammed desire out of her out of her earshot. Um, and then for Dream to be in this position where he desires something, he desires companionship. Um, he's lonely, you know, the idea that that is something that is outright offensive to him. You think I would befriend a mortal? And then he does. And that friendship means something to him. And that, I think, the idea that something as humanly simple as love and affection between two people can completely upend Dream's sense of himself and what he is. Um, I, I love it. I love it so much. This moment, I, I liked this issue before we got there, but it's that thing that just made me fall in love with this issue. Every week I say this might be my favorite issue, but I think this might be my favorite issue. <laughs> well, uh, there's a special place in my heart for all of the one-shots. The, it's not to say mm -hmm. that I don't like the longer story arcs, but the one-shots are poems. And yeah. I really, I really feel that. I also think as I look at Hobbes' character, that, mm -hmm. you know, Hobbes is not some great intellectual. He's certainly mm -hmm. no altruist. But what <laughs> he has is this stubborn resilience. And I think there's something yeah. in that those characteristics that also resonates with Morpheus. Yeah, the Morpheus looks at Hob and sees himself to a certain degree. I mean, we open up in the in the beginning with Hob when he first grabs Stream's attention, right? Um, it's because he is stubbornly saying, despite like the blatant reality that is around him, people only die because everybody else is doing it. Like, if you just decide you're not going to do it, you don't have to do it. You know, like that is so phenomenally stupid. And yet I think there is something in Dream that sees that like brazen stubbornness, you know, and digs it, you know, and wants to see what happens to this guy. And he dangles death over him. He's like, you know, death won't touch you unless you want it. And then when he's miserable, when Hob comes in drunk, disorderly, a mess, He's hated the last 80 years. And Dream is like, you want to die now? And Hobbs like, nope. That's a, what does he say? That's a mugs game or something. It's so, it's so fun and delightful and just crunchy and interesting. I just, I love it. Um, but of course, one of the things that like, you know, everybody looks at fiction through their own lenses. And that's one of the beautiful things about fiction is that you can't, in the same way that Dream appears to everybody, a reflection of what they expect of him or whatever. Um, I think that happens in fiction too. And so one of the things that I constantly see is the ways in which um, dreams, captivity, and trauma response kind of inform the difference, right? There he is in 1889, you know, what, 20 years before he gets captured, right? Um, and he's like, I don't need friends. I don't need a mortal. I don't know what you think you're doing. I'm not lonely, right? And then he gets put into this cage alone for, what was it, 70 years, right? So he has that captivity. He's completely traumatized, you know? Um, so every meeting in this whole storyline uh, except the last one is pre-captivity and the last one in which he fully refers to Hob as a friend, an idea that was so offensive to him, um, is the only part of that story that takes place in our present storyline. 
Um, and I thought it was interesting because I'm like, why at this point pause the narrative to tell this tale of friendship and what it means. And I mean, yeah, you know, definitely like you're talking about part of it, maybe just that like, you know, you're laying down track as the train is coming. And sometimes you got to put down the track that you have available, whether it's the track that you would have wanted to put there or not. Um, but I think there's something in the Sandman story that speaks deeply to the ways in which trauma changes who we are, and not always in bad ways. You know, dreams, trauma opened him up to connections with other entities, be they endless siblings or inhabitants of the dreaming or regular old humans. And in the middle of this story, in which everyone is traumatized to a degree, Rose, Jed, Miranda, Unity, Lita, this story sets a thematic stage. Wait, I'm sorry. This story sets the thematic stage for kind of like examining how all of those different traumas play out, which I think is really kind of interesting. So when you look at this thematically, it kind of does sit nicely as an intermission, but an intermission that sort of opens up a greater context over this particular story arc that we're in right now. I just thought that was such an astute observation on your part. And I don't know that I had recognized it as clearly, but yes, of course, that makes so much sense that the Sandman who is willing to acknowledge that Hobb is a friend is, you know, the, the person, the person, the anthropomorphized concept um, who, <laughs> you know, who's already been through this trauma. And in that sense, it's not merely the passage of time that changes us. Yeah. You can go a lot of years with nothing happening that fundamentally change who you are or how you see the world. It mm -hmm. is when you are tested and tested, you know, ideally, you know, when we talk about creating character and showing character, making deep choices, it's always mm -hmm. by putting pressure on a character where they are most vulnerable and mm -hmm. really, you know, uh, uh, putting that stress on them. And I think for Morpheus, loss of agency is yeah. such a huge stressor he you know there there are all kinds of things you could do to him that wouldn't bug him solitude mm -hmm. i don't think that would be you know that wasn't the issue he was not yeah. so upset at being alone for all that time it it was the loss of agency yeah which i just i really love that um and it's so fun. I think, God, you know, that moment where he comes in and he says, you know, I've heard it's impolite to keep friends waiting. And I was like, oh, you know, like, it's just such a, like, every time he has one of these, like, deeply human moments, it just, like, gets me in my feels bone, you know? I'm just like, oh, it's so sweet. Um, but as we move forward into, I think, what is quickly becoming, like, my favorite part of the podcast is Lucian's library, all of this behind the scenes stuff. And um, I found a couple of things that I wasn't quite sure about, but you called them out too. So I'm going to let you take this because I love your, you know, the extra knowledge that you have about these things. All right, let's see. Uh, I'll start with Lady Johanna Constantine. Mm -hmm. She is Neil's invention. He built on, you know, the charismatic, narcissistic, manipulative occultist that uh, Alan Moore created in... Um, mm -hmm in Swamp Thing by making uh, Constantine part of a family of sorcerers. Mm -hmm. Johanna reappears in a later issue, which Neil must have known already because Morpheus mm -hmm. says, she undertook to fulfill a task for me and succeeded most admirably. 
And uh, so that that is I, it's funny because we'll talk about it later. That was in my run. And he always mm-hmm. blamed me for pinning him down in a letter column for what the next issue was going to be and making him scurry to do the research to write it. After I that. love it. It was my job <laughs> as Dream has mm-hmm. his responsibilities. So did I have mine. And you carried them out beautifully. Uh, Yeah, after seeing Johanna Constantine, um, I was so intrigued by this interaction, by this character. And I was like, oh, I want to see her again. And so then when he came back and said, you know, I had her do something for me, I was like, oh, is this something that is before this? Like, again, one of these things that he's every part of the pig, one of these things that he's weaving in. Or and now, like, as I did the research, realized that that was something that he was building himself, that this was kind of like a new part of this lore um, that gave us that history of the Constantine, you know, family line. And I am very, very excited to see when she pops up again, because I liked her. I mean, she was, you know, I mean, uh, clearly up to no good, you know, trying to threaten them and figure out what was going on. But uh, but yeah, I digged it. There I ha- digged it. I dug it. <laughs> there has not been such a badass in blonde ringlets uh, since Nellie mm-hmm. from Little House on the Prairie. I'm telling you, it's pretty great. So there was somebody else immortal yes. that, uh, that Hob mentioned. And this, okay, so this is something where Neil, there was a thread on DC continuity and Neil's continuity on Twitter. And then mm-hmm. um, uh, at Alex K uh, mm-hmm. said, I wrote an essay on continuity. And Neil said, Elisa ought to read this because she's not so good with the continuity. No, he didn't say that, but he thought it, I'm sure. And um, so I I went to look at this essay and I thought, oh my God, what an incredible resource. We're going to link to that in our our show notes. But anyway, so when Hobb mentions blood, he's mentioning Mm -hmm. Jason Blood, the human host of the demon Etrigan. Etrigan, the rhyming demon. Yes. You know, Jason Blood, we'll see him again. He's the human host of the demon Edge again. I don't know. Sitting, oh, just, maybe we'll cut I like that. it. All right. So anyway, um, that that is, and, and the reason that Jason Blood doesn't always recognize uh, Hob is because I think Merlin has been screwing with his memory. Oh, my goodness. Well, that in itself is sounds like a fascinating story. This is another area of DC Comics. But um, but again, like I love pulling that in, having that natural and this being, of course, central to Hobbes insight that you already know what happens when somebody doesn't die. We got Mad Hetty too, right? You know, there's a reference to Mad Hetty. You already know. So that's not why you meet with me. You yes, know? It's, I, I mean, like it's, that. it's really being put to purpose. I just want to say as an aside, though, that I love the whole idea that there are like a branch of rhyming demons in hell. And <laughs> I, 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 if there is a hell, I want briefly at least to visit the rhyming section. I think so. I think if you're going to be sitting in hell, you might as well have a little fun while you're there. You know, Um, it's people, a lot of people who know how to have a good time. Um, So, okay, talk to me a little bit about fairies and Shakespeare. So right at the beginning, we get Morpheus trying to say something about the fairies being about to quit this realm forever. And death says, hush, you know, we're here for people. Listen to the people. But mm-hmm. that is a little delicious uh, Easter eggy nugget 
that mm-hmm. is it is it an Easter egg if it's before? Is this is this a seed? Is this an Easter egg? Is this a I, an appetizer? You know what? I say let's call all of like anything that hints at something else that this isn't directly about. I would say we can call that an Easter egg. All right. Yeah. So this mm-hmm. is a tiny appetizer-sized Easter yes. egg. <laughs> An amuse-bouche uh, <laughs> story. Yes. yes. <laughs> and uh, and then again, we get the bargain that Dream makes with Shakespeare. And so mm-hmm. both are going to come together in a future standalone issue, um, Midsummer Night's Dream, which won the World Fantasy Award. So it's okay. Oh, it's all right. <laughs> it's all right. <laughs> but, but this kind of seeding that Neil mm-hmm. is doing is what makes this hang together so well. I mean, you think about the fact that this was done as serialized fiction. Mm-hmm. You know, he you know, he he doesn't have the luxury of going back and putting that's what I do and so many writers I know, you write something and you figure something out and then you yeah. go back and you drop it in. But this this had to be dropped in during the, you know, first first run and yeah. and that is what makes this hang together just so well as as a, a mm-hmm. collected series well yeah he picks those threads up and then he he weaves them through and i also really love too that we've basically got an algonquin round table in the white horse tavern throughout time we, we start with chaucer we move into Marlowe and shakespeare who at least were there at the same time but it just seems like we've had so many like we've had all these you know really interesting figures kind of like just dancing through this space over time i like it Yes, and this you you're again noticing something that I love, which is in these one shots you often get commentary on writers, on storytelling, mm-hmm. on the ways in which writers struggle and writers succeed. Um, that will really come to uh, the fore in a, another uh, standalone, which is called Calliope, which is um, oh yeah mm-hmm. going to be uh, wonderful and problematic and all those great things, <laughs> but. Uh, yeah, so I I love all the writer stuff, and I have more. And then, so uh, people who don't, you created the wonderful template for our scripts, and there's all these little. <laughs> I get the purple, and there's yes. all these purple <laughs> things, and I had so many things to say about the historical that I ran out of purple. Oh. <laughs> You can always copy paste and do more. Anyway, it doesn't matter. But yes, we've got all of these little historical things. And I am dying to have you talk about all of this because I love the research that you do is so terrific. I mean, for somebody who was there for it, you know, like you do as much research as if you didn't already have the street cred from being there. And I love it. Well, I think that if we had been doing this 20 years earlier, maybe I wouldn't need to. (laughs) It'd be all off the top of your head, right? Yeah, you know, I think a lot of times I think I know there was a time when I clearly (laughs) remembered all of that. But Mm -hmm. um, no, but I don't know that. I I mean, to be honest, Neil seems to keep things very straight in his head. I usually have a vague memory of, wait a Mm -hmm. minute, wasn't there another drummer? And then I have to go and look it up, you know. And there are people who just always like, of course, there were three drummers. And, you know, the first one only had one hand. And that is not something that I can remember. (laughs) Wait, is that a Def Leppard reference? (laughs) 
I just made that up. I don't know. The one-armed drummer from Def Leppard. Okay, I'm, is I'm there sorry. a one-armed anyway, drummer? Only there was there was a one-armed drummer. I think it was Def Leppard. Although I'm certain, I'm absolutely certain, somebody in this audience is gonna a know I'm wrong and b tell me on Twitter. But go ahead. Okay. <laughs> so if there, I that was I I thought I was making that up, but maybe that was a half memory. Okay. So in the first panel of the first page. Someone, you know, it's it's these. So when you see a balloon that has no tail, and this is mm-hmm. the first time we've seen that, that is mm-hmm. a sign that this is sort of that murmur of conversation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, it's we don't really know who's speaking and it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. So uh, someone says when Ball and Tyler were killed, the spirit of the working man died with them. So John Ball was a priest involved with the Peasants' Revolt of 1381, and Watt Tyler was the leader of that revolt. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that that's just, uh, these are things, again, that I kind of sort of knew. It's like, wait, I know those mm-hmm. names. Let me look it up. Yeah. And also at this point, I know that there's nothing in there that's accidental. Mm-hmm. Piers Plowman is an allegorical poem about a good Christian named Will, and it's got some elements of social satire. So the mm-hmm. there's, uh, I should go back and say in this early bit, we've got Chaucer looking very put upon as mm-hmm. this other guy is, you know, lecturing him like, well, fine, if you don't want to write in the literary language of French, exactly. <laughs> be more like, you know, I think it was William mm-hmm. Langland who wrote uh, mm-hmm. Piers Plowman. But the... You know, the the difference with Chaucer, of course, for those who don't remember, mm-hmm. or I, I was horrified some years ago, I was riding on the subway to work and I saw a teenager with um, a copy of Chaucer that she was obviously reading for school. And it said, mm-hmm. you know, the abridged or edited version. I said, Ugh. excuse me, can I look? And I looked and I opened it up, you know, for the Miller's Tale to see, mm-hmm. you know, the eclapped fart line, you know. <laughs> and I said, oh, no, they've edited out the very things that would make you like this. I said, listen, <laughs> you don't know me, but let me explain what you need to do. You need to get yourself a proper copy of this. Oh, my um, God. And... Uh, <laughs> So I just recently binge watched The Chair, that series. Oh, about so did I. Oh my god, so much love. So th- this so is so good. This is about academia, and we've got mm-hmm. um, this body wife of Bath kind of earthy uh, professor Joan Hambling, mm-hmm. and she at one point, spoiler alert, gives a wonderful rant to a bored student about how the Canterbury Tales are full of farting, shitting, and pubic hair, and. <laughs> And basically, I was, you know, so I think Mm -hmm. I don't know if I I really I hope that that student, you know, went and got the proper Chaucer. But anyway, I think that that what's funny is there's this, Mm -hmm. you know, there's somebody lecturing Chaucer on how to be a better commercial writer. Which is yeah, exactly. And the thing is, is that Chaucer was, you know, like body and quote unquote lowbrow or whatever. But we remember who Chaucer is now. <laughs> like people still go back to Chaucer. We're still reading the Canterbury Tales, you know. Um, and you know, William Shakespeare is a very similar kind of thing. Like you know, I mean, he wrote for the groundlings. He wrote, you know, for the people that were up front and that you know, and he made these you know really really body jokes, you know. Um, and uh, and it was something he wrote to appeal to everybody who might have been in that building, you know, no matter where they were. And I kind of like that these like writers for the people, you know, are both people that we remember now. And like, you know, the fancy people who felt that they should be something other than what they were 
have faded into obscurity. So I say point one for authenticity. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, so the last thing is there's a reference mm -hmm. to King Lear. And mm -hmm. I actually saw King Lear for the first time performed this summer with, mm -hmm. what is the name of the actor who played the crazy guy from Taxi? Yeah, it was oh, also God. the professor. Christopher Lloyd. Christopher yeah. Lloyd was King Lear. It was Doc from Back to the Future. Oh, my God. I love it. It was very, <laughs> very good. Anyway, mm -hmm. and I realized, uh, which I wouldn't have when I was younger, that King Lear mm -hmm. is actually a play about dementia. But that's another mm -hmm. topic. <laughs> anyway, so when mm -hmm. um, Hobb mentions King Lear, he says they had Mrs. Siddons playing Goneril, and they rewrote the play to have a happy ending. Mm -hmm. Now, what I had learned, I can't remember when I learned this, but not that, maybe five, six years ago, was that in the restoration period. So just going back, you know this, <laughs> you know that, that there was a civil war in England for a while, mm -hmm. Oliver Cromwell was in, and it was super religious. They banned all theater for 20 years. Mm -hmm. And when the Merry Monarch, Charles II, was brought back to the monarchy was restored mm -hmm. they were like we're gonna have all body all the time mm -hmm. and but they hadn't had a lot of plays written because there wasn't any you know yeah. was, that was not a good career to have during mm -hmm. Cromwell's England so they went back to Shakespeare but um they they really wanted it bodier they wanted it mm -hmm. um happier and um, and very pro monarchy, so they mm -hmm. they did a lot of editing of those. Now I hadn't realized it continued as long. I knew it, that restoration was a little bit earlier than this period. Mm -hmm. It was but so that Charles II came back, I guess sixteen sixty six or so, around there. Mm -hmm. But I guess this and and this is when women began um, acting on the stage. Mm -hmm. Sometimes women even acting the men's parts. And that brings us to Mrs. Siddons. So I did not know this. Mm -hmm. I just looked it up and found that Sarah Siddons was mm -hmm. considered the first actress who really knew how to cultivate celebrity in the modern Kim Kardashian. Let me oh my send God. you know lots of images of myself out to my public. And mm -hmm. uh, yeah, so and she played Hamlet until she was 50. Oh, my God. Wow. Well, that's fascinating. I love that. I love when the the presuppositions of history are, you know, are, are thrown aside and you can see what people actually really did during those times. Because the things that we believe to be true about a time and a place like in general, in the specific will be completely subverted by somebody. Somebody is out there just upending the apple cart all over the place. And it's really, really fun to see that happen. I love that. I didn't know about Sarah Siddons, but now I want to read about her. Okay, so this is now, well, she was like the the earlier Lily Langtree, and I was yeah. obsessed with Lily Langtree, who is another mm -hmm. kind of celebrity beauty of the Edwardian age. Mm -hmm. Anyway, the last thing, one of my favorite things from this episode is we've got mm -hmm. the old man saying, you know, look, now they're coughing because of those chimbleys, chimneys, <laughs> you know, and, right. and, uh, and Hobbs saying, you're nuts, old man. It wasn't better when we mm -hmm. were young. And um, so I I was looking up, I have, I have some historical books. One is The Common People by mm -hmm. J.F.C. Harrison, and it's, it's sort of a history of the common people in England. And mm -hmm. I found this wonderful quote that falls into the category of, you know, it was better when things were worse. And uh, <laughs> it goes, 
Laborers of old were not wont to eat of wheat and bread. Their meat was of beans and coarser corn, and their drink of water alone. Cheese and milk were a feast to them, and rarely ate they of other dainties. Their dress was of hodden gray. Then was the world ordered aright for folk of that sort. And that was the poet John Gower back in 1375, sounding like he was sitting in the back of that pub. Uh, back in my day, we didn't need any wheat and bread. Exactly. We had beans and corn. That was, I mean, it was just, that was the old fartiest of old fart things I to say. I love it. I love it as much as things. And, you know, I mean, that's the wonderful thing, too, because as much as things uh, change, they don't change at all. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So, Elisa, for Men of Good Fortune, what's your favorite page? Oh, God, I love the first and last pages, which are, mm -hmm. you know, kind of mirror, distorted mirror images of each other. Um, I also love how late 80s Hob and Morpheus now look as dated as all the other versions. <laughs> Looks like a costume with Morpheus's very right. spiky yeah. hair. And 30 mm -hmm. years later, I'm, I'm more convinced than ever that much of what we consider change is window dressing and yeah. mm -hmm. dirty jokes, complaints about taxes and predictions of the end times are just... That's what's a constant. I know. And I love that reflection, too, where we have the same conversation happening. What is it? 600 years apart at that point. Um, and it's the same stuff. I did have one question. You know, I was thinking mm -hmm. about the two things that I noted in the comic. Uh, I think it's Kit Marlowe, right? Who's casually mm -hmm. slapping the, the barmaid's rump and she's sort of smiling at it. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking... Hmm, you know, I wonder how that is going to get translated into the TV series. Is, you know, there mm -hmm. going to be a little tweak to that? And I think the other thing I noticed was we don't really get any comment on pollution or the environment. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking how, and again, I'm this isn't meant as a critique. This is amazing. But we're always a reflection of the times that we live in. Yeah. I think there was more of a common preoccupation with pollution and the environment in the 1970s when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. Right. And then it seemed to get pushed aside and there were these other concerns. Mm -hmm. And that's another thing I'll be interested in. So when we look at, you know, it, with the TV series, are there going to be moments where, you know, people are talking about off oh, the state of the, the, you know, that that pea fog, mm -hmm. that pea soup fog that is mentioned mm -hmm. in the Victorian, that was a byproduct of, of uh, the Industrial Revolution in London. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, there are all kinds of ways that we might see reflected how humans have screwed with the environment and, <laughs> and can see it reflected. I wonder now that people and, and Neil definitely are, you know, mm -hmm. probably more thinking about that, is it going to find its way in as well? It's interesting because we do like our, our stories reflect us back at us, you know, um, and when we are preoccupied with any particular thing, that's going to find a way in there. Um, but it was funny because there was this one line that Dream says that stories always find their way back to their original form. Um, and I think that that's interesting because uh, because we could. There could be, you know, a big feminist moment where he slaps her on the ass and she slaps him in the head or whatever, you know, and doesn't take it, right? Um, and we could see that now. But the original form of a story is, it always comes back to what the story is about, 
you know, like the little details, the little uh, minutiae of our lives and the things that we are concerned with at any given moment in time is one thing. Um, but the core of the story is always going to be the same. And I thought that that was kind of interesting, you know, when he was talking about the changes that were made and the story always returns to its original form. Um, and that's kind of a, an idea that um, that I feel like there's more there than I necessarily have, have processed yet. But I'm definitely going to be coming back to that idea as we go. Um, for me, I have to say, like, my favorite page is Dream. When he's sitting and waiting for Hob in 1689, Hob comes in drunk and depressed. But Dream's outfit, Dream's hair, he has bows on his shoes. They are high heel shoes. I want those shoes. Like, I want those shoes for me. I love the placement of the panels. Dream all distinguished and stylish. Hob is a complete mess. Um, it's just, I think, my favorite interaction with the two of them you know is dream is so buttoned up and so perfectly quaffed you know and then hob is just a complete and total you know mess of a human from somebody who had been doing so well before and we would see him do well after this is just a low point for him it was a rough 80 years you know um and i kind of i kind of love it i especially love too when hob was like <laughs> i came back too soon or i stayed too long and they tried to drown me as a witch <laughs> All of this stuff just kills me. I absolutely love it. So what is your favorite part of the whole issue? Well, I think my favorite part has got to be Jeffrey Chaucer, you know, bored and irritated as his friend lectures him on how to write commercial fiction. Yeah, every writer probably really sympathizes with that particular moment, because I think we've all had that where people are like, oh, you just should write this way, or you should do this, what everybody else is doing. I'm like, well, if everybody else is doing it, nobody needs me to do it, you know. Um, and, uh, and so I kind of love that uh, the, the, the writer's complaints sort of show up. In, uh, in Chaucer's, you know, irritation with the idea of commercial fiction, in Shakespeare's imposter syndrome, and for all of the people in all of the world uh, to give imposter syndrome to William Shakespeare is probably the most hopeful figure, right? You think if this guy didn't know that he was good enough, then the fact that I doubt my own talent every minute of every day is not that big a deal, <laughs> you know? Um, for me, I gotta say, it's just that ending. It's I have always heard it was impolite to keep one's friends waiting. Would you like a drink? That politeness is even a concept to dream that he would entertain that concept, uh, let alone have politeness be a quality that he would aspire to you know, and, and hold sacred in that way. Um, all of that was, it was so touching. It was so lovely. Um, I just, oh God, that was the moment where I just went, oh, <laughs> it's such a good moment. And I, you know, I realized that I didn't mention one thing that I, I was also touched by, which was that Dream also tells Hob to get out of the slave trade. He's not so yeah. detached and disinterested that mm -hmm. he, you know, he just says, well, you know, these are humans doing their silly human things. He does care. Right. And we'll see Hob again. And that the guilt over that will be a thread that gets carried through yeah that actually was something that um that was really well done and i like that hob is um when he returns a hundred years later 
he is not okay with the choices that he's made. Like he knows that, that that's one of the worst things that he could have done. Um, and that as a commentary on, you know, dreams investment in the human experience and on Hobbes growth, you know. And on a much lighter note, and this may not be something that I should say here, but if you love the bows on those shoes, yeah. you've got to check out Fluvogs, which are these weird shoes which have a lot of designs that are clearly patterned after that. I don't know, mm -hmm. is it restoration? Those sort of weird... Yeah! Oh my god, it's so adorable. I love it. I love those shoes. I'm going to have to take them. I'm going to check them out. All right, if you enjoyed this conversation and would like to join in, connect with the show on Twitter. Follow at Chipperish and use the hashtag EndlessPodcast or send your comments or questions to Endless at Chipperish.com. This episode of Endless was brought to you by the Chipperish media producers who support us on Patreon at the power producer level. These people are the reason why Endless is coming to you free and ad-free right now. So thank you to Abby, Alice, Christina, Erica, Kevin, Kristen, Michael, Rose, Sarah, Shelley, Stephania, and Stephanie. And this week's special message for our power producers. Are you hunting for rabbits again, Friar? To find out how you too can support Chipperish Media, visit patreon.com slash chipperish. Other ways to show your support? Write a great review on Apple Podcasts. Tell your friends about the show. Or scourge the bad, revolting stars. This episode of Endless was edited by Chipperish content editor Jack Cram. Jack, you have everything to live for and nowhere to go but up. We'll be back next time with Collectors, issue 14 of the Sandman series. Until then, I have always heard it was impolite to keep one's friends waiting. Would you like a drink? <laughs>